And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, for your word is a light, your word is a lamp, your word is power. So Lord, for what you put on my heart, I believe is for everyone here, self included, Lord. But Lord, I pray and ask in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit to go forth. For the Holy Spirit to begin to work in the hearts of your people. That we may hear very clearly that still, small voice. Lord, give us a softened heart to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches at this time. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Now, this morning, we're back into our Make Jesus Known series. You can see the table here and there's literature to go out. So far, we have covered four chapters, just four chapters. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 was entitled Relations and Locations. Matthew chapter 3 was entitled God with Us. And in Matthew chapter 4, we had three messages. Triumph over temptation, the upward call of God, and the gospel of the kingdom. Now today we shall begin in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. This famous sermon covers three whole chapters and will take some time to properly teach on. In fact, it's going to take months. And I think it's important that we give months to teach on this most important sermon. Now, to set the scene for what we're about to go into, I think it's important that we go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. So turn with me, please. It's entitled in my Bible, Jesus Heals a Great Multitude. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, the thing that's striking here, it says, great multitudes followed him. Great multitudes. And then we look in Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. 
we see that Jesus has separated himself from the great multitude. And he is seated, and now he begins to teach his disciples. Now look with me in your Bible. We have Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. Now look with me at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8. When he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Can you see that? In the beginning there were great multitudes, they followed him. In Matthew chapter 5, he separated himself from the great multitudes and sat down as a rabbi would to teach his disciples. Matthew chapter 8, again, Jesus comes down and great multitudes followed him. I believe there's a clear distinction between the great multitudes and the disciples. The multitudes Jesus showed himself to. He worked miracles among them and he had compassion on them. With the disciples, Jesus sat down with. He gave them in-depth teaching. The disciples worked with Jesus. And he gave them a commission. Can you see there's a difference there? Now, this text, of course, is in the first century. Okay? The multitudes followed. They received help from Jesus. And they were happy to be seen with Jesus. Jesus was a famous rabbi. He's doing miracles, he's doing healings, he's casting out demons. He is essentially a cool guy to be seen with. He's the man. He's the rabbi of the day. It's cool to be seen with Jesus. Now, the disciples were taught in depth by Jesus. They worked with Jesus And they were martyred for following Jesus. Again, a clear distinction between the great multitude and the disciples. Can we see that? Now, that was the first century. How about the 21st century? This is how I see this passage. The multitudes are simply those who profess Christianity. These are the great multitudes of today. They may be nominal Christians, meaning by name only, or traditional Christians. My father's a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. Or I go to a church every now and then, or I was christened, or I was baptized, or I go at Easter or Christmas. Okay. Or maybe somebody who says this, I have a faith. Well, I do have a faith. I believe in God, I have a faith. That, I would say fits in with the multitudes. But the disciples today, I would say, is this. The ones who are born again. Why? Because they, and they alone, are able to receive instruction. They're able and are willing to be shunned for their faith. That's how I see the difference between the first century and today. Now, I have come to believe that this distinction is both known, 
the real believer and the unbeliever, to both nominal Christians and unbelievers. This is my observation for pushing 20 years now. Okay? The nominal believer, the Christian in name only, finds you lot a challenge. The born-again Christians are challenging to the nominal Christians. And they are not willing to discuss basic biblical teaching. Is that true in your own experience? They will not engage. They will not discuss. They will simply shut down or shut the door or end the discussion. That's the nominal believer. Now, listen to this very carefully. The unbeliever, the non-nominal, the non-Christian, the atheist, knows a false church when they see it. For example, I know many people who are non-Christian look at the Catholic church, which I believe is a false church, and they know it's a false church. They know that it's a corrupt church, and they know it's false. They also know where there's a liberal church, that that's false as well. They know it. I'm convinced that they know a liberal church is a false church. However, both these churches, the Catholic church, which has false doctrine, and the liberal church, which equally has false doctrine, are a convenient church for them. It's easy for them to use them for their convenience to reject the Christian faith and the message. I will throw out one name, Christopher Hitchens alone. He loves to quote the Catholic church and the liberal churches although he knows they're both false and has said so. You see that? In a sense, it's a convenient truth for those who desire to not believe. Now, why am I saying all of this? Why am I laying all of this down? Well, I believe that the Bible has been used and is used to bring comfort. We find biblical verses in cards, um, We find biblical verses being used at Christmas or Easter to unbelieving friends. Fair enough. We find the Bible's been used in ceremonies. Is that the ceremony of King Charles III? It was used so much. We notice that the Bible is used in court. Okay? But I say this. It's simply been used. The Bible has been used in all of these. Now I want to quote you from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. To emphasize my point, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Bible has no comfort whatsoever to give to people who are not Christians. None at all, except to warn them to flee from the wrath to come. It has no true comfort because it's not everlasting. Let me read it again. The Bible has... No comfort whatsoever to give to people who are not Christians. None at all, except to warn them to flee from the wrath to come. Now, we are about to go for the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, Jesus is teaching his disciples, who are true followers. For us to truly receive instruction, we must be born again. Unless you're born again, you will not receive biblical instruction. Okay? There would be an arrogance, there would be a rebellion, and there would be a rejection of what Christ is about to say as we go through the text. Indeed, God's word is powerful and can convict anyone of sin. I agree with that. However, 
Conviction of sin does not guarantee change. Conviction of sin does not guarantee that somebody's going to make a life change or a decision for Christ. But for those who have entered into a covenant with Christ, those who are baptized, those who have been born again and received the Spirit, the teaching of Christ demands a change in us. For those who are convicted, there's no guarantee. But for the true believer, if the Holy Spirit brings conviction to you, it demands a change in you. You need to conform to it. Jesus says in John 13, verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. You call Jesus teacher and Lord, and you say well, for that's who he is. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I really felt I had to lay that down. Because we're going to be going through such a profound teaching. I want to change. I want to go deeper in the word. And I believe that you do. A true believer is wanting and desiring to go deeper with God. Are you desiring to go deeper with God? Because we're gonna, if I just went straight into this passage on Sunday, it's so well known that we just go, well, okay, I've heard this before. Let's go over it again. But I want to lay down a foundation of something that's already happened to you in your lives before we get into such a profound teaching. Today's message is entitled, A Life in Communion with God. Now, will you turn with me, to, please, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. A very well-known verse of the Apostle Paul, who himself had a born-again experience, who met Christ. I can be reading it from a slightly different translation, the NLT, if you're making notes. Paul writes this. He said, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live in this earthly body, says Paul. But he is trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He loved me and he gave himself for me. He makes it very personal. We're dealing with a personal God, a personal saviour whom we can have a personal relationship with. Amen? God is very personal. Now, I want to break this down to three statements. The first is, my old self has been crucified with Christ. The second is this, Christ lives in me. The third is, I live in this earthly body by faith. Now, today is essentially a teaching, other than a sermon, but it's a reminder to the Christian of a decision he has already made. Let me say that again. Today's teaching is a reminder to the Christian of a decision he has already made. And we're going to begin with number one. 
My old self has been crucified with Christ. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 6. I believe it's important to lay a strong foundation before we get in such a profound teaching from Christ. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to read 1 to 14. This is Paul speaking about being baptized and crucified with Christ. And notice how much of it is in the past tense. Paul says, Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know? That as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Are you aware of that? Do you remember that? Therefore, because of this, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was, past tense, crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. But he who has died has been freed from sin. You can see why Paul says so often, reckon yourself dead. Okay, we're going to get that. Now, if we died with Christ, notice it says an if. We believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion or power over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Amen to that. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, not just Savior, but Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present yourselves, your members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. We should hate sin. We should hate sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members of instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall have no more power over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. And this is a beautiful thing of grace. God's unmerited favor should drive us to want to serve him more faithfully than our law. For what Christ has done for us causes my heart to want to serve him more than if I was compelled to serve him. You see that? The law can say, well, you should do this and you can be puffed up. Well, I've done it. I've, I've kept all the laws. I've done these things as Paul did. But the grace of God and the goodness of God should compel us to say, that's the man I want to serve. That's the man I owe everything to. 
the one who gave it all. We even sing it, don't we? That's the one I want to serve. Now, our old self, boy, Sam, has been crucified. Do you remember your baptism? Hands up who remembers their baptism. Good, I'm glad you're all sober. Now, that baptism day was your death day. But it's also when you entered into a contract with God. You, on this day, entered into a covenant with God. You entered into an agreement publicly with God. Essentially, you're saying this. I no longer live for myself, but I live for you, God. And God, in a sense, is saying, I no longer live for myself, but I live through you and for you. When Abraham entered into a contract with God, that's essentially what they did. Got the animals, cut the animals, they walked through it. That's it. I'm living for you. It's exactly that for a marriage. You live for the person in whom you're in covenant with. Covenants are so important to understand. And every covenant is with a blood. There's always blood involved in a covenant. Marriage covenant, there's blood involved. For the covenant with Christ, there's blood involved. There's always a sacrifice that one has to do. Amen, everyone? When you get married or anything else, or when you enter into a covenant with God, there's a sacrifice because you have been joined with that person. You're no longer two, but one. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So that was the day you died, by the way. But it's also the day you were raised in Christ. Amen? That was the day. Now, some of this may seem very simple theology to you, but it's very important for us to get this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Paul, again, is writing to the church at Corinth. But he who has been joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's you now. Flee then sexual morality. Every sin that a man does outside the body. Um, but he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. <clears throat> you realize that. That's why not just adultery, but fornication is not a sin just to your spouse. It's against your own body and against God. Or do you not know? Verse 19. And I will say much of the church do not know. And there's very clear reasons why they don't know. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that? That's your body. Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Um. I could be doing something at home. I'm going to get in trouble for this as well. And I go, oh, really? Why have I got to do that? And Chelsea would go, well, you're, you're married now. And she smiles. And I have to go, thank God I am married now. Because I'm not my own anymore. I've entered into a contract. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for Chelsea. <coughs> but I get some wonderful dinners. Because Chelsea is also living for me. Yes, healthy dinners, because it's not my body, it's her body. That's why I had salad yesterday. <laughs> it's very good salad. Verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which 
are whose? Can't hear. They're God's. They're not yours. That's it. You died. It's over. That's the contract you entered into. Okay? And this contract cannot be broken. You'll be held accountable for the contract. Okay. <coughs> the question is, what price was paid? What price was paid for you? The crucifixion, life, death, the cross, that was paid for you. So it takes us to our second part, which is Christ in me. It says that you have the Holy Spirit in you, whom you received from God. Okay? So let's turn to John 16. I kind of had to backtrack in my Christian walk that I didn't really know much about the Holy Spirit. Um, when I received the Holy Spirit, I had to go back into the Bible and say, well, I was a very new believer. Um, what's all this about? What, what's going on? My wonderful brother wrote me a letter from Scotland to India where I received the Holy Spirit and said, look at these passages. And he explained this to me. So John chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, not the multitude. <clears throat> but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said those things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And I'm sure it did. Jesus has been with them for three and a half years and he said, I'm off now. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Notice past tense. He's already judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. <coughs> There's only so much the disciples could handle. They're going to get much more revelation once they've received the Spirit. And they will understand all of these things after the resurrection and ascension. However, verse 13, when he, notice a he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he is, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, says Jesus, for he will take what is of mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, very powerful. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I say to you, that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Turn to John 14. Because we're, we're considering Christ in me, or is it the Holy Spirit in me? Now in this passage, Jesus speaks both in the singular and in the plural. Why? Because God is Echad, one. Okay. Now, 
John 14 from verse 15. How many of you were familiar with the passage just read? You're familiar with it? Good. Now, Jesus promises another helper here. Verse 15. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Notice that. The world could very much be the great multitude, couldn't it? But, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The promise of the Holy Spirit will come and make home with you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Singular, plural. Holy Spirit, Christ. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, this is the verse that arrested me when I was in India. Because Christ manifested himself to me. And not to me alone, to thousands, to millions of Christians who are born again of the Spirit. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, will keep my word. Notice that? <clears throat> the word that you have is the Bible. Okay? If you love me, you will keep to my word. And my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He does not love me, will not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. You can see the triune God, the Godhead here. Singular, plural. I, we, the Holy Spirit. So Paul says quite rightly, Christ is living in me. And he said it's to your advantage that he goes. Christ made it very clear that he died for the sins of the world. This is the sacrificial lamb spoken of by John the Baptist. His mission was completed. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished. It's perfectly perfect and completely complete. The job was done. That brings about the sacrificial system. Now I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 where it speaks about animal sacrifice at the temple <clears throat> and we're going for a lot of scripture here I hope you're writing it down but I can't go for it all so I'm going to be picking up from Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 essentially it's been saying that these former sacrifices were a shadow of things to come Let's pay close attention. The writer is saying, but in those sacrifices, Hebrews 10 verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. The Jews had to go up each year 
to Jerusalem to get a sacrificial lamb, have an offering. The priest would slaughter it, would stand up and slaughter it, and um, that blood was poured over them as a symbol of forgiveness. The, the sheep or even the goat becomes the scapegoat for your sins and you are purified. But it was just a reminder, actually, that your sins are not fully forgiven and we see you again next year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said to you, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. You can hear the Messiah's voice. Everything's about me, says Jesus. Verse 8. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and the offerings of sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Not my will, but your will. You can see what's happening here. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. He takes away the first sacrificial system, which is a form or shadow of things to come, and establishes the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is finished. Jesus completed his mission. He come as a sacrificial lamb. Verse 11 says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. You see, the priest stands. Why? Because his job is not finished. He stands every day, sacrifice, sacrifice. Verse 12 is the key verse. Get this verse. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. Cast your minds back to Matthew chapter 5. He sat down and taught his disciples. Today, he is sat down teaching us through the Holy Spirit and revealing to us his word through revelation in the Bible through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as he said, it's to our advantage that he went. We are in a better position as born-again Christians than the apostles were when Christ was on earth. Do you see that? That's how we are taught. Before, in a sense, it was 2D. We are taught, in a sense, 3D, with the Spirit dwelling in us that can bring about conviction. Jesus teaches us he's in a sat-down position. And I say that's the difference between the multitude and those who are disciples. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he said, Christ revealed in me. Paul had a supernatural revelation, the outworking of God's promise in him, that he had received from God what God had promised him, and now he understands. 
And my question is this. Can you hear God's voice? Maybe not audibly, but can you hear God's voice? And what is the result? When you read his word, does it bring conviction? Does it bring comfort? Does it bring clarity to what you believe? Does it bring assurance when you read his word and you just know it's true? See, I've met loads of people from different backgrounds, languages, cultures, and colors. And none of, all that just gets done away with. They're the nutters. They're the born-again Christians. I lived in Jerusalem. You could tell someone if they'd met Christ or not. You could just tell that they've met Christ. They've spent time with Jesus. They could even be from Germany. They could be from Somalia. They could be from Japan. It doesn't matter. You just look at them. You just, I know that you know him. Something is changed. Do you speak back to God? And do you have the assurance that he's listening to you? These are questions I want you to ponder. Because if this is the case, you've entered into a life in communion with God. You're already there. You've received the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's a guarantee of eternal life. Okay? This is communion with God. And this is the most precious thing that anyone can ever receive. Now listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones hearing a little testimony from his deathbed. A lady come to visit him and said, Oh, doctor, I'm sure he's a preacher. I'm sure you're missing preaching. He was a preacher all your life. I'm sure you're missing preaching. He said, not at all. I didn't live for preaching, but a life in communion with God. Whatever you have is nothing compared to this. This is so precious that you can hear from God, that you are convicted by his word. I'm not saying that you know everything of the Bible and all the doctrines, but that you can hear from the Almighty, your creator. If you have that, you have everything. First seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. You see? You see how the enemy wants to get in and wants to stop this? Now, before I get into the, the third part, I, I wasn't going to, but I'm going to share a little story, a little picture that the Lord gave me while I was washing up. The Lord showed me a picture of Jerusalem. It doesn't have to be Jerusalem, but it serves as a good picture. With all of the gates going around Jerusalem. And in the center of the Holy of Holies. Okay? And... The Lord asked me a question, what were you seeking? And I asked you a question, before you became a Christian, what were you seeking? Write this down, what was I seeking? Why did I become a Christian? For myself, I was looking for truth. This is what I was looking for. Okay? I checked everything. I, was, I studied uh, the Bhagavad Gita, Taoism, Zen Buddhism. I'd studied many things, philosophies. 
But I was looking for truth. Now, I came into the knowledge that Christ is the truth, personified. He is truth. Okay? Now, the city of Jerusalem, consider it like this, is a city of truth. So once you get into the gates of Jerusalem, you've entered into truth. Okay, you get me? This is the picture. However, the center of truth is the Holy of Holies. Are you with me? Now, I've entered into truth. I've become a born-again Christian. I've received the Holy Spirit as Christ promised. But, in the city, I've met other Christians who keep saying to me, look down this avenue. This is interesting. Which is true. Okay? But the pure truth is still in the Holy of Holies. Then I try and make my way to the Holy of Holies. And they say, well, look at this avenue. Or this shop. This is a shop of truth. And all the Christians inside, the king, uh, inside Jerusalem are all born again Christians. However, they're in a sense becoming a holy distraction. Look at this truth, look at that truth, let's discuss this truth, okay? And in a sense, it's keeping me from getting to the truth, the communion with God. I've entered into the kingdom, but I want communion with him who's in the Holy of Holies. Does this speak to any of you? You see, I didn't come into truth because I wanted to be a preacher or a teacher. I wasn't born because I wanted to be a pastor. I became a Christian because I was looking for truth, and that's Christ. But there can be many distractions. However, look, we make our way and we get to the Holy of Holies. Many of the Christians might be saying, well, you're a bit righteous, you're a bit holier than now. You say, look, I want to go into the Holy of Holies. But as you realize, outside the Holy of Holies, there's a sacrifice that must take place. You hear that? Before Elijah got the fire from heaven, he had to put the last bit of wood on the sacrifice. And I believe if you want to go deeper in your faith, and I want to go deeper in my faith, there must be a sacrifice take place. Now we know Christ has done it all. But there is something beautiful in dying. There's something to gain by giving it all away by laying down even the Christian avenues and the Christian shops and all the Christian truths where we want to enter into a deeper communion with Jesus I hope that speaks to some of you there's much Christian stuff out there which is good but it's not Christ this is perfect amen now the third one we will finish with this Paul writes I live in this earthly body by faith, he says, or I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's living in the finished works of Christ. He's not trying to earn his salvation, but he's living in those things. What does it mean, essentially? He's living by trust that Christ has done it all. He has pure confidence that Christ has done it all. He has full dependence on God. He has a life dependent on God. He is not an independent Christian. He is dependent solely on God and the hope which is revealed in his word. 
You see, you've received the Holy Spirit. The knowledge that you have of this is in His Word. The truth that you have of Christ is in His Word. You are sanctified by the words, Jesus said, that I have spoken to you. So much is against the Bible. It is a, a sought-after um, book of the enemy. So much attention is on the Bible, it makes me suspicious. And somebody doesn't want you to have it. Now, the question is this. Has God revealed himself to you? Has God shown himself faithful in your life? And has God been trying to get through to you lately? Has he been trying to speak to you? I think God's been trying to speak to me and yet to make me lose my voice. To shut up that I may hear his voice. And he spoke to me very clearly on these things. Do you want to go deeper with God? For us to get into the Sermon on the Mount is deep, deep spirituality. I want you to pray for me before I get into this teaching. It's so familiar to so many of us, but I believe the Lord's going to reveal much to us. As we go through the Sermon on the May, I believe God will speak and convict us if we are teachable. He teaches us and guides us and convicts us by his Holy Spirit. If you want to go deeper with God, it's a life of obedience to God. Jesus said, you call me teacher, I'm Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this I say, all of this as an encouragement. A reminder that you and I have entered into a contract with God. We know there's much distraction, but we also know that God wants to take this relationship deeper. So consider this, we're going to be having communion right now, before you take communion, and ask yourself do I really want to go deeper with God and what do I need to lay before the cross in order for that to happen because I believe the Lord is going to teach us lots through obedience through this passage the disciples are different from the great multitude he doesn't sit down with the great multitude but he sits down with the disciples and he wants to teach us by his spirit and lead us for his glory Amen. Let's bow our heads and, and finish with a word of prayer. So, but Father, we thank you for a reminder that Christ wants to sit with us and teach us. But Lord, soften our hearts that we may receive. Lord, soften our hearts that we may believe in every word spoken by your Son. And by doing so, Lord, that we may enter into a deeper communion with you. Lord, may we do this with joy. May we be like the apostles, with excitement and anticipation of what Jesus is going to be teaching us. By your Spirit, Lord, you are able to transform us but only when we yield to thy word. So Lord, teach us to yield. And Lord, examine us right now, we ask. 
by the Holy Spirit. He wants to lead us and guide us into all truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.